Hello. Welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we're going to be looking at I Grant You Ample Leave by George Eliot. Now, you probably know George Eliot best as the author of the Victorian novel, the great Victorian novel Middlemarch, but she was also um, a poet as well. She was she was born, um, not as George Eliot, believe it or not, but as Mary Ann Evans. I'm reading from the Poetry Foundation website here, which has been very helpful as usual in its research because I in the research because I'm not a very big um, George Eliot buff or expert. I haven't read her novels. I haven't read Middlemarch. I know very little about her, but I, I really like this poem. And also, um, I, I only really thought about this one because um, if I, uh, I'm going to do some live research here because I've got to bring up the quote as it was. So I was a bit stuck for a poem to look at. And so there are a number of um, woman poets that I was looking at because I thought it's been a bit male for a while with this podcast. So um, I, 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 I was looking at some Renaissance poets and some Augustan poets of which there are many women that, that, that whose work isn't that well known or isn't part of a popular consciousness anyway. So, um, so President von der Leyen, in the final session of the U, that the UK um, was sitting in Parliament before leaving the EU, she quoted um, George Eliot. And the quote that she uh, quoted was, I want to use the words of the famous poet George Eliot. Only in the agony of parting do we look into the depths of love. That's kind of beautiful, isn't it? That's good. That is very beautiful. Um, I wish it was true. I wish it was true with respect to the UK leaving the EU, because um, all I've seen so far in my social media feed has just been abject hatred and revulsion and um, mutual antagonism. So there I was thinking that those words weren't well chosen, but I thought, oh, is that from a poem then? I should look up that poem. That could be a really apt poem to do for Rusty Sonnets. Couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. All I could find was quote hunter and wiki quote and everyone seems and Goodreads. Everyone seems to be using this quote, but there are no attributions to this quote. So I have no idea if it's from one of her novels or her letters or from Middlemarch or one from her, or from one of her poems. So I'll give you a few biographical details about George Eliot before we look at the poem. I don't want to spend that long doing it all today, to tell the truth, because I haven't spent a lot of time researching it at all. Poetry Foundation has been incredibly helpful. And I would like to give a shout out to a fantastic um, essay. So after I found this poem and for oh, I'm doing this poem, I found a link to someone doing a much better job than I will of going over the poem and analysing it. And that's an essay from the Poetry Foundation called George Eliot's uh, colon, I grant you ample leave, and it's by Hannah Brooks Mottle. And I think it's, uh, she calls it a poem's, a poet's poem from a novelist poet. So that, her, her write-up has been incredibly helpful to me as well in doing it. And I, I want to give due credit, just in case it seems like I've stolen pretty much everything from her. Um, but lots of stuff to go with my go around with my yellow underlining pen there. Um, so the biographical notes of George Eliot very quickly. George Eliot, as I said, the famous novelist of um, writer of Middlemarch, not as well known for, for her poetry. This poem was actually um, this poem was one of her unpublished notebook poems. Um, she wrote one long epic poem, which no one read. 
and I think other poems were seen to be quite overwrought or overwritten and they didn't get the same win the same respect as her novels did. She was born Mary Ann Evans, as I said already, in rural Warwickshire, reading this straight off her biography um, on the internet. Now, um, her first poem was published in the Christian Observer in 1840. She was a practicing Christian. Um, she was very educated. Um, but in 1841, she came into group of, contact with a group of philosophical thinkers. This is me reading verbatim. And her passionate commitment to Christianity began to find new directions. By early 19, 1842, Eliot questioned the historical foundations of Christianity so much that she both abandoned her faith and stopped attending church services, a move that led to strenuous conflict with her father. Eliot eventually resumed church attendance, but did not begin to, uh, did not return to active faith. In forty three lines of blank verse, oh, okay. So anyway, that's um, I'm not going to read that out. That was me reading verbatim from the uh, Poetry Foundation website. So she was quite the intellectual. She was knowledgeable about science. She was knowledgeable about history. She was sceptical about religion, and she was politically engaged as well. And of course, she published under the name George Eliot because this is what women did. You know, um, women would would conceal their identities behind more male sounding names so they could be taken more seriously. Um, another thing that a lot of women have done in literature in previous years is use their initials as their name to sort of be to de to degender their name. But there's also uh, um, the poets such as uh, we looked at Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Sonnets from the Portuguese. And that was a good example of someone who was pretending that the, 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 the love sonnets that she had written about her great love, um, Robert Browning. But she she'd actually sort of she had to still conceal it a little bit because it wasn't wasn't thought the right thing for a woman to write sonnets about her deepest feelings about the person that she loved. That was only for men to do and for women to receive. So even she had to disguise it by by pretending ultimately or implying with the title of her collection that they were translated from Portuguese and were therefore probably written by some great esteemed and of course male poet. So George Eliot, she, she moved around, she got involved in the publishing world, she got involved in the intellectual world, in, in salons. And um, she, uh, let me see, in 1851, she became ed assistant editor of the Westminster Review during her time with the journal. I'm reading verbatim from the biography again. She met English and American literary figures, figures most significantly Herbert Spencer, the author of Social Statics, and George Henry Lewes, the drama critic and founder um of the leader which gets to the magazine now george henry lewes became her partner and they became um, a partner for many years i don't know how long they were partners for because it's not here in this article i'm reading verbatim from which is the, represents the very little amount of research i've done of this but this poem is seen as sort of coming from perhaps the conversations that she was having with her partner or with other people um it was a complicated relationship. She couldn't marry him because he was still married. So he was married to Agnes Jervis, who over time bore, bore four children by a married friend. So there was a bit of a love triangle going on there. A controversial figure during her time, Eliot published translations as well as prose and poetry, all but one under adopted pseudonym. Among her themes are music, art as an activity of unfathomable human worth, the notion that the past shapes the present and the conflict in a woman's life between great duty and the prospect of a happy marriage. Her prize masterpiece was a psychologically insightful Middlemarch, A Study of Provincial Life, published in 1871. 
I think that's enough background for now. So let's look over the poem and, and give it a good going over after that, shall we? So this is I Grant You Ample Leave by George Eliot. I grant you ample leave to use the hoary formula I am, naming the emptiness where thought is not, but fill the void with definition I will be no more a datum than the words you link false inference with the since and so, that, true or not, make up the atom whirl. Resolve your ego, it is all one web, with vibrant ether clotted into worlds. Your subject self or self-assertive I turns naught but object, melts to molecules, is stripped from naked being with the rest of those rag garments called the universe. Or if, in strife to keep your ego strong, you make it weaver of the ethereal light, space, motion, solids, and the dream of time, why still tis being looking from the dark, the core, the centre of your consciousness, that notes your bubble world, sense, pleasure, pain, what are they but a shifting otherness, phantasmal flux of moments? And then a big old dash. Not just any old dash, not one of those N dashes that, you know, little apology for a dash, you know, an N dash is basically a, hy a hyphen getting big ideas of itself. I'm talking a big old M dash, of course, you know, this one here, um, after the question mark that ends the last word of the poem. It's also all, all presented in quotation marks as well, which I find really interesting. So maybe that made no sense to you. And that's absolutely fine. I like this kind of poem. It reminds me of the poetry of Wallace Stevens. Wallace Stevens, great modernist poet, terrible racist, probably the right idiot to meet in real life. But I don't think anyone else writes poems like Wallace Stevens. That's why I like reading Wallace Stevens too. But it gives me a similar feeling that I get from, from the poems of Wallace Stevens. They're intelligent. They're, there is an argument, but it's so convoluted and dense at the same time. But you feel you have to read over the thing a few times quite slowly to really get a hint of what is being said. I don't know. Maybe I read it out really well and you got it straight away. I don't know. But we know straight away that someone is being addressed in a poem. There's there's these speech marks that begin with the poem. Someone is being addressed. And and there's a certain feeling of sort of incompleteness at the end of the poem as well. So almost as if the poem is a fragment. Now, to be fair, the poem might actually be a fragment. That is a theory that actually part of it is probably actually even then it could be that because it's a fragment, it's actually written in quotation marks as well. There's something for you. I have seen that before when fragmentary poems are sort of reproduced. They can be reproduced in quotation marks or in italics. So what is being said in this poem? I think we have to visit what is being said and then we can look at this style of the poem after that. So I give you ample leave is it could be seen as someone actually saying, OK, you can have a bit of time off. I don't know. Maybe someone's talking to their partner saying, um, go on, go away for a while. Maybe you have to be away on business. Maybe it's the uh, testimony of um, of the uh, wife of John Donne, who wrote a poem about how they should be like compasses. Uh, many hundreds of years ago it does not mean that i give you ample leave is, is that sort of victorian mannerism of of giving permission give you giving you leave you know if by your leave you know when people say that in in sort of costume dramas by your leave good sir uh, it's just meaning give give permission so i give you ample leave 
to use the hoary formula I am. I might talk a bit about the style now of writing of the poem. So to use the hoary formula I am. Hoary is just obviously it's ancient and sort of respected or esteemed. So I give you permission to say I am. Here's my little bit about the style and the technique of the poem. Um, I find it really interesting that I grant you ample leave. The da di da di da. Yeah, there's a sort of I give you ample leave. That's iambic trimeter. But um, the next line is iambic pentameter. To use the hoary formula, I am. And it remains in iambic pentameter until the end of a poem, which is fragmentary again and gives that sense of incompleteness. So there's this sort of incompleteness. I grant you ample leave to use the hoary formula, I am. So, yeah, saying I am, it's something that we would say about ourselves. Every act of self-assertion normally begins with I am. Um, We even have a term giving it the big I am. In it. So um, I find it really interesting that it's that I don't know if it's a pun as well, because the the poem is iambic. Could it be? Could it be me looking a bit too far into this again? I think so. So to use the hoary formula, I am naming the emptiness where thought is not, but fill the void with definition. I. There's a lovely line break here. So naming, so say you say I am, you're naming the emptiness where thought is not. Have you ever, I don't know if George Eliot meditated. I know I've spoken about meditation and my own practice in this podcast. But it is really interesting that part of meditation is looking into what is there when you're not thinking. Looking into what is there when you are just being and one thing that it's been described as so that gap between thoughts or even the center of yourself when you are thinking has been described in meditative and eastern tradition as emptiness so to use the hoary formula i am naming the emptiness where thought is not so when we say i am when we look at the center of our being and i think you can get a sense of the center of your being we assume that is the i but actually what's there is emptiness. So when we when we invoke I, perhaps according to the argument of his poem, we are placing something into that emptiness, shoehorning it in, if you will. Now, but so, but fill the void with definition, I will be no more than a datum, more a datum than the words you link false inference with, the since, and so. Um, that's a bit meaty, isn't it? So the definition, I will be no more a datum than the words so there's yeah to, but fill the void of definition i there's that saucy line break i was talking about which continues because because if you're listening to the poem you're thinking i oh she, she she's saying something about herself now but she's not i is just being still treated as a thing and it's if, if anything else it's being treated as a datum a datum a datum is just one piece of one piece of um information i guess a datum something that's entered in you know a solitary piece piece of of data a datum so i is just a datum it's just one part of data amidst the whole thing then the words you link false inference with the sense the sense and so false inference is to have come to a wrong it's more of a philosophical term and it means to come to a a wrong philosophical conclusion you link false inference with the since and so that true or not make up the atom well. Atom well is interesting. So in the article that I spoke about already that was on the Poetry Foundation website, 
which was an article written by Hannah Brooks Mottle. And she says some interesting stuff about Atom World being... I mean, when I read it, I read Atom World just thinking, oh, that's just materialism, isn't it? It's just we're, we're made of stuff. But she says it's quite an archaic word, actually. So to add Atom World is to kind of bring a more spiritual, archaic quality into it. She's saying in that opening argument, the I, the I am, and the since and so's that follow from I am, ultimately... They're just part of the the atomic structure of the universe. There is no this, therefore, that. There is just this current state of being, which is all the material arrangements of the world are happening in their current order and will move and shift into different accumulations and consequences. Makes you, makes you, you know, listening to this on a Sunday, I hope that puts everything in perspective. Resolve your ego. It is all one web with vibrant ether clotted into worlds ether was seen in victorian times as this extra invisible quantity of the universe now i can't remember what powers of the universe were attributed to ether but it was something that people were convinced existed and looked for until they went nah probably doesn't exist and some philosophers of mind feel the same way about consciousness and ideas of consciousness that ultimately these are more sort of reductionistic or um, deflationary physicalist and, and materialist philosophers who ultimately think it all comes down to act activity in the brain. And uh, they say that ether is the, 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 the interesting idea that you know was was thought of as part of everything. And then the idea wasn't so much disproved as let go of. It wasn't needed anymore. And so they think the same thing about our ideas of innate consciousness. So I don't necessarily agree with that, but I'm just explaining what ether is. Resolve your ego. It is all one web with vibrant ether clotted into worlds. Your subject, self or self-assertive I, turns naught but objects, melts to molecules, is stripped from naked being with the rest of those rag garments called, uh, named the universe. So even though I skipped that passage it still pretty much makes sense, doesn't it? It's the same thing I was just saying anyway, which is ultimately, yeah, this this eye, there's just no room for it. It's just like everything else that's determined within this ultimately physical universe, which is ultimately just stuff. And you are ultimately just stuff. Okay, so the person who is addressed seems to be doing a bit of an about face here to try and keep the idea of the eye or the ego strong obviously ego in this poem is being used in perhaps a different way people um normally ego obviously is associated with having an inflated opinion of yourself and um more of us so that, that still kind of goes in the sense with this poem i mean normally we're associated it with people kind of accusing other people of having massive egos well normally with people with massive egos a massive sense of entitlement and a massive sense of themselves asserting that they have no ego that happens a lot doesn't it the people who kind of assert their lack of ego the most tend to be the most egotistical people so in this this poem george Eliot's use of the term ego isn't so much when we point our fingers at someone who's a bit full of himself and they say you know we say you've got an ego it's not really like that it's more of the old school latin way of using it and the way that i guess freud used it as well our conscious personality our ego is that sense of there being a little geezer behind between the ears as ken campbell used to put it so that's what she means by ego she's really attacking the idea of the self in this poem so before we're told, you know, resolve your ego, it is all one web with vibrant ether clotted into worlds. And then she goes on to talking about molecules, um, 
you know, and the rag garments named the universe. So ultimately that part of the poem deals with an argument about the idea of the I or the ego having no place in the material existence of the cosmos, no place in that entity that we call the universe, the physical universe, be it within our bodies or elsewhere, it just doesn't exist. So she moves her argument on when she mentions ego again, and because she now anticipates, okay, you're going to say the ego is, is perhaps the sense of being, the sense of selfhood. But yes, sure, we observe the universe and the universe doesn't, doesn't really, doesn't, doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any soul when we look outwards. But ah, but what, what are we looking from? What are we looking from then? Maybe the, the, the core of our being, the core of the observer, that is where you'll find the eye. It is the eye will not be found looking outwards. It is through introspection that we find the eye is is the reply that she's anticipating. So in this in this final twist of argument of a poem. Or if in strife to keep your ego strong, you make it weaver of the ethereal lights. We've dealt with Aoife already in this poem, but thinking of Aoife as something slightly different to the um, to the other qualities of the universe that un invisible aspect of the universe but she says the ethereal light space motion solids and the dream of time why still tis being looking tis being sorry let me say that again why still tis being looking from the dark the core the center of your consciousness that notes your bubble world sense pleasure pain what are they but a shifting otherness phantasmal flux of moments and then this big long m dash so it's a wonderfully sustained argument over those last few lines being so there's a universe and everything else so you're you're making the eye something else and she's saying that it is being looking from the dark the core the center of your consciousness being is something other here isn't it it's almost saying that the, the, the center of your consciousness so therefore the thing that that, that constitutes the eye is the consciousness but being itself seems to almost be lower down than that being is filtering itself through the many things that make up this person's consciousness but in itself the being itself is not the i the being is something that again is dispersed through everything it's just being it has no particular personhood that is all it is it is not particular to each person being i know heidegger had a few words for being and I'm not completely, I don't entirely remember what each of them meant. But um, but but here the argument is basically being that being is ultimately a, a primal quality of of reality, of existence, being itself. And ultimately that sense of something at a core is just that. It's just this being which is equally distributed everywhere, being sort of funneled through the contents of an individual's consciousness so therefore the it is the individual's consciousness which is chopping and changing and 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 in many ways ethereal um that that that, that, that is being called the i but the being itself looks through it cannot be called the i i think that is the crux of that argument the argument of the whole poet so yes so yeah let's just read those lines again still tis being looking from the dark the core, the core is dark, the core is nothingness, the core is emptiness, the centre of your consciousness that notes your bubble world. I love that, bubble world. Sense, pleasure, pain. 
What are they but a shifting otherness, phantasmal flux of moments? Um, yeah, it's just another. So if the universe is just a bunch of molecules smacking into each other, then even if we look at the different from the introspective point of view, it's still just stuff, isn't it? It's just stuff flying about thoughts popping into consciousness and popping out again. Emotional states, moods rising upwards. None of them last. None of them can be the core of our being. They're all very transient. So where is the self, I think? I think ultimately this is someone saying there is no self. Just a phantasmal flux of moments. The poem ends on another fragment, doesn't it? It sort of begins like a fragment with that, um, that iambic trimeter, I grant you ample leave. And then phantasmal flux of moments. Now there is an extra unstressed syllable. And then that M dash, that really big M dash, seems to fill in the expected i mean the whole poem's been in blank verse apart from the first line and then all of a sudden we have this we go back to that rough iambic trimeter and then a big old m, -bat, m dash and it's almost like the m dash anticipates that the brain it has got used to reading each line of this poem and so when you read that phantasmal flux of moments you almost fill in the blank beats that that da, da, da. <laughs> phantasmal flux of moments <laughs> So I, th I think there's a certain aspect of the style of the poem there, echoing the content of the poem in a really interesting way. Um, I love the term bubble world as well. For instance, um, what is my world? What am I right now? I'm not going to, by the way, I'm probably going to wander off on one. I'm just going to seg into the wandering off on ones from now on. I normally used to play Ric Flair going woo. And then that would be the moment where, okay, we're, we're separating the, analysis of the poem from Niall just talking rubbish about whatever he feels like I'm not going to do that anymore I'm retiring Ric Flair from active duty like Shawn Michaels did so I'm going to carry on just talking about some things that I think I can think of when I speak about the bubble world and then I'll just probably suddenly end this podcast after that so the bubble world is really interesting because when you think about what your consciousness is can you look at your consciousness right now have I spoken to you about Douglas Harding before Okay, don't try this if you're driving or something. But very quickly, maybe you're stood up in a room. In fact, what I would ask you to do is if you're... So this is something um, called The Headless the headless Way by a, by, a, by a gentleman called Douglas Harding, who is a bit of a mystic. And, uh, and, and it, what, what, what he did is he discovered a method that was very similar to getting people into a state of mind that they would have in meditative states, but he would do it very quickly. Now, some people, when they experience this, they just think, oh, okay, whatever. Okay, what's all that about? Yeah, fair enough. But he felt that it was something that you should pay more attention to and actually really think about, because ultimately what he thinks is, is he's pointing out the real, the actual state of your consciousness, what your consciousness really is. So um, should we try it now? You should look at your bubble world, okay? If you want to see your bubble world, then um, start off, stand up, face out of a window, okay? And maybe you've got a good view out of your window. Maybe you've got a brick wall. Maybe you've got an advert. I don't know. You're looking out your window, right? Okay, so you stood up. You're all right there. Stood up. Yeah, you're doing this. Okay, so once again, if you'd like operating heavy machinery, I, I, the idea of anyone operating heavy machinery while listening to me is just, it's just too horrific to even entertain the idea of. If you're flying a plane, 
driving a car, doing anything that if you lose concentration might end up killing people or making you lose fingers or something like that, then uh, obviously maybe save this for later. Just chill out for a second. Now, if you're looking out a window, that's great. If you're just in the room, just point, face the corner of the room. Maybe it's a really clear corner. Maybe it's a cluttered corner. What I want you to do is just point at that corner or point at that view out of your window. Okay, just like that. So you're pointing. I'm pointing right now. Yeah, maybe you want to look from your finger to the thing that's pointing, that it's pointing at. Maybe you want to shift a couple of times from your finger to the thing you're pointing at. Okay. Follow your finger, but down to your to, down to the ground. Now you're looking at the ground. There we go. And again, if you if you want to, just follow from the finger to what it's pointing at. And now point to your feet. Yeah, you're getting this now. You know where this is going, don't you? So your finger's pointing at the feet. And again, look from your finger. There's the thing that's pointing, and then look at what's pointed at. There's the feet. Maybe come up to your knees. Point at your knees. There it is. And then look at the finger again. And then look at what it's pointing out, your knees. And then your tummy. There we go, there's your tummy. Pointing at your tummy. Mine's quite a thing to behold right now, I'll tell you that much. So you're pointing at the finger, there's the finger, there's the tummy. Look from the finger to the tummy. Okay. And then finally, well, let's go to your chest. There we go, your finger's pointing at your chest, your solar plexus, something like that. Yeah, again, have a look from your finger to your chest. And then finally point to your head now look at your finger and now look at what your finger's pointing at what is your finger pointing at and shift from your finger to what it's pointing at again now I might have wasted the last few minutes of your life and I apologize to that but this is what Douglas Carding called the headless way and a state that people say that they experience is suddenly being aware that they have no head so maybe you're doing that with a finger now but actually you're suddenly aware that what you can see your experience of the world in a visual sense is this stuff of the world that surrounds you this body that sort of pops out from the bottom maybe your hands waving about as well but the one thing you can't see is what you think is the center of your being, your head. And it's quite a first time I had this experience. I, it was quite weirdly profound, but I dismissed it equally quickly. But the interesting thing is to try and rest into this and to try and maintain this this state of viewing the world from a headless state. But ultimately, what it what it is is that you have these experiences. You have the experiences of your visual world. You have this experience of the sound, maybe the side of you, like I've had this helicopter just intruding on this recording for ages. And maybe also when you rest into it, you might notice the physical sensations of your body and you might also mention, you know, feelings of hot and cold. Maybe there's some remnant smell or taste as well. All of these are part of it. In fact, there's everything. The whole world is there. Everything is there apart from your head. And yet this idea of our consciousness is something that lives inside our head, but we're not conscious of our head. Now, some people say, of course, you can't see your head because your eyes are here, you know, so you can't see your head. But it's not so much about the placement of your eyes, it's more about the placement of yourself, the placement of who you are. And it's a good way of seeing that actually when you're looking for this place where your consciousness is meant to be, there's actually nothing there. There's just the world and there's just your sensations within that world and your occasional thoughts within that world. And 
that's a good little exercise to try. So I first tried that about 10 years ago and I didn't really take it very seriously, but I kept returning to it and I find it more and more interesting. Did that help you? Did that, was that an interesting experience? Have I just led to you having a massive breakdown or something? Um, I don't know. It's worth trying. You have no head. The truth of your experience is you have no head. So the bubble world, if anything, the thing I experience in that is that idea, I think, of what George Eliot calls a bubble world. And uh, I think I'll end it there. So thank you, George Eliot, for allowing me to go from Brexit to the illusion of the self and hopefully making a few listeners realise that they don't have heads. Um, if it doesn't work, then, I don't know, take lots of drugs and try it again. But anyway, thank you for listening. Just a reminder that the Paradise Lost Book Club episode one is still live on SoundCloud and you're very welcome to go and listen to it. If you want to read through Paradise Lost with me or if you just want to listen to me talking about Paradise Lost, it's fine either way. Part two of the Paradise Lost Book Club will be posted on the final Sunday of February. I can't remember what date that is, but um, it'd be great to have you listen to that. But other than that, sorry for the little delay in Rusty Sonnets. I think these might happen now and again because I just have... A busy life in many ways, but not a glamorous one. So um, thank you for listening. Have a good one. Bye bye.